I will have the horrible war between Russia and Ukraine settled, and we'll do it quickly. The commitment of the United States to our NATO alliance and Article 5 is rock solid. International humanitarian law must be respected. Hi, everybody. Welcome to International Crisis Group's newest podcast, Ripple Effect, which is going to be a podcast about America's relationship to the world and the countdown to the November 2024 presidential election. My name is Steve Pomper. I am the chief of policy here at Crisis Group, and I'm joined by Michael Hanna, who is the director of our U.S. program. Hey, Michael. Hey, Steve. Uh, nice to be getting started with, uh, with the podcast today. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, we are basically in countdown mode to the U.S. election. Now, we're planning to do monthly episodes, one a month, until uh, November 2024, the big day. The race is already taking shape. Uh, the candidates have not been formally nominated by the two parties. I think everybody assumes that President Joe Biden, the incumbent, is going to be the nominee for the Democrats. There's a little bit more of a race on the Republican side, but by far the front runner is former President Donald Trump. So that is setting uh, us up for a real interesting matchup. We're going to be keeping an eye on a number of things as we approach Election Day. One is the question of whether or not we're going to have a peaceful uh, succession of power, uh, not something that people traditionally have looked at in the context of U.S. Uh, presidential elections, but obviously in light of the events of January 6th in uh, 2020, or I guess it was 2021, uh, we're in a very different place now. So we'll be looking at that. Um, we'll also be looking at the differences between the way in which Biden and Donald Trump will be taking the direction of the United States in terms of governance and democratic norms. I mean, we see some real differences between the way the two are positioning themselves. Those have implications, obviously, for people here who live here in the United States, but they also have implications for countries around the world that have used the United States as a model over time. Um, and then third, while we're talking about the role of the United States in the international system, and what we'll be talking about today is uh, how this election is potentially going to affect uh, the United States relationship with its allies around the world and also with its adversaries. Um, obviously, the U.S. has a huge number of strategic partnerships with countries that rely on it. And obviously, also, the U.S. has a pretty big stable of adversaries that chart their own course through the world and in relationship to how the U.S. behaves. And all of them are going to be watching this election uh, attentively. And so we're going to be trying to figure out how they are looking at the U.S. through that lens. Um, we have a great guest to get us started today. Um, and I'm going to actually let Michael introduce him. Thanks, Steve. Uh, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Colin Call to the show today. Um, Colin is back at Stanford at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, but was until earlier this fall the most senior policy uh, official at the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, where he served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Colin also served uh, during both terms of the Obama administration most notably as then Vice President Biden's national security advisor during the second term. Uh, Colin combined strategic thinking about the future of U.S. foreign policy with very extensive and recent experience as a policy practitioner uh, at the most senior levels of the U.S. government. Colin, uh, really pleased you could join us today. Great. Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be with you. 
So, Colin, I'll take the first question here. Um, the old wisdom is that U.S. elections don't turn on foreign policy. People care more about pocketbook issues and other domestic issues. But we're seeing a lot of coverage already uh, in this election that's trying to draw the public's attention to just how much of a change a second Donald Trump presidency would mean for, for U.S. foreign policy. And indeed, that's a premise for this very podcast. I guess my question is in two parts. First, do you think that this is maybe overcranked? I mean, after all, we've seen what a Trump presidency looks like. And while I'm not at all trying to applaud his foreign policy, it didn't upset as many apple carts as people expected. So do you think we're going too far in terms of trying to project what a second term would look like? And second of all, even if we aren't going too far, do you think it's going to matter at the ballot box? Well, look, I, I, certainly if Trump ends up being the nominee, um, uh, then there's a lot at stake um, because Trump diverges from the foreign policy consensus in pretty appreciable ways, especially the uh, commitment to deep internationalism and leadership uh, that the United States has uh, basically embarked upon since the end of the Second World War. Whether that difference between Trump and Biden on foreign policy ultimately matters very much at the ballot box um, I'm skeptical. Now, I say that with the caveat that I do foreign policy, I don't do domestic policy. But traditionally, as you said, Steve, foreign policy issues are not decisive in in campaigns. Uh, I think candidates have to cross a certain commander in chief threshold. Uh, and certainly there's a general sense a world is a dangerous place and who is best to navigate uh, that that world. But I think each specific issue tends not to be terribly important, with the partial exception of foreign policy issues that kind of reverberate across our borders. So issues like immigration or, or trade. Um, so, you know, I don't think this election w- is going to hinge on Ukraine or Gaza or or uh, any specific uh, foreign policy issue. Uh, but the stakes uh, for the United States and for the world in the foreign policy differences between Trump and Biden are enormous. I mean, look, we did see Trump 1.0. I'm happy to talk about some of the, the ways in which Trump 1.0 didn't, didn't uh, create an inheritance that was particularly stable when Joe Biden became president. But I also think uh, your listeners should keep in mind that Trump 2.0 is likely to be meaningfully different and meaningfully more destabilizing. Um, I think it's inconceivable that Trump would emerge from an election victory next November without feeling both validated and vengeful. Uh, validated because he believes the election was stolen the last time, even though it wasn't. He believes all you know all of these Court cases are one big witch hunt, uh, and uh, he believes enemies are at the gate. And if he vanquishes all of them, he will walk into office validated, vindicated. And he's made it clear that he would seek revenge on his adversaries at home uh, and abroad. So I think that you're likely to see um, a United States that, uh, like in the first Trump administration, turns more inward and one that has a very rocky relationship with America's closest allies particularly in Europe, and one that would have a very different policy towards key crises in the world, in particular, uh, the conflict uh, in Ukraine. So anyway, I'll pause on that, but happy to talk about kind of, you know, as someone who served until the end of the Obama administration, then came back at the beginning of the Biden administration, a little bit of how the world felt after uh, four years of Trump um, and the kind of inheritance that we faced. Um, But I don't want to filibuster too much here at the outset, so I'll, I'll, I'll hand it back to you. Well, that wasn't filibustery at all. Um, and I'm before I hand it over to Michael for the next question, um, I'm going to take you up on that invitation. Yeah, what was it like to step in uh, after four years? 
Well, you know, I, I served in the Obama administration until about midnight on January 19th of 2017. And then in the four years of the Trump administration, I'd like to believe I paid attention to what was going on in the world. But coming back into the into office at the beginning of the Biden administration, I was struck by just how much harder the world felt. Some of that, I think, is a consequence of deeper structural changes in international politics, uh, the rise of China, a more resurgent Russia, um, uh, circumstances like COVID that had you know, paralyzed the global economy and uh, killed and sickened uh, millions of people in the United States and around, and around the world. Uh, but part of it was also just the utter disarray uh, that the Trump administration had left our foreign policy and our foreign policy apparatus. Uh, and so the world just felt harder, uh, demonstrably uh, harder. Trump's legacy on foreign policy was essentially to leave to Joe Biden a world that was on the brink. If you think about Ukraine, for example, uh, Trump never engaged seriously in trying to resolve the conflict between Russia and Ukraine uh, through the Minsk uh, process. He never really invested in it. He did do some good things, uh, like providing uh, Ukraine lethal uh, defensive assistance, like javelin missiles. Um, then Vice President Biden was in favor of doing that during the Obama administration, too, although uh, it ultimately didn't get done. So that was good. But then, of course, he held that aid hostage to uh, Zelensky uh, digging up dirt on his uh, political uh, opponents. And of course, that led to the first impeachment of of Trump. So um, he, he left uh, Ukraine uh, a mess. His kind of strange public embrace of Putin and his berating of our NATO allies, I think, also left our relationships with Europe in probably uh, the lowest point uh, that that I can remember. And, uh, you know, almost everything we do in the world drives through our transatlantic relationship uh, with uh, with our closest allies uh, in NATO. On Afghanistan, of course, you know, Trump cut a deal uh, with the Taliban behind uh, the back of President Ghani and the government in Kabul. Uh, he withdrew most of our forces, uh, but engaged in absolutely zero planning on how to safely withdraw the remaining forces, how to transition security responsibility and counterterrorism to the Afghans, and how to deal with vulnerable uh, Afghan uh, citizens. And it really left Biden in a terrible position of either violating a deal and going back to war with the Taliban, which, of course, the American people didn't want, or following through with the deal on a very compressed timeline under very difficult uh, circumstances, and obviously we all saw uh, how things uh, unfolded. On Israel, I think Trump's team deserves some credit for the Abraham Accords, but they completely dismissed the Palestinian issue as important, put it on the back burner, and essentially created a permission uh, permission structure among uh, the political elite in Israel to uh, dismiss the two-state solution as something that was required both for Palestinian dignity and for the security of Israel. On Iran, you know, Trump tore up uh, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, about a year into office. Uh, whatever one thinks of the Iran nuclear deal, and it was far from perfect, when the deal was in place, uh, you know, Iran would have taken about a year, about 12 months uh, to uh, uh, make the fissile material for one nuclear bomb. Uh, without the Iran nuclear deal, they can now do that in a matter of days. Trump did that in the service of trying to put maximum pressure on Iran. It didn't work. Uh, it didn't stop their support for terrorism. It didn't stop their support for regional proxies. It didn't stop them from building ballistic missiles or drones. It didn't stop anything. All it did was uh, enable Iran to get closer and closer uh, to a nuclear brink. And on China, you know, Trump zigged and zagged. On one day, he'd impose tariffs. And on the other day, he would sing the praises of Xi Jinping and call COVID the Wuhan virus. So he was all over the place. You know, Trump uh, meanwhile, did basically nothing to invest in the underlying sources of American power other than 
uh, increasing the defense budget. But in terms of our economy, I mean, I don't know how many infrastructure weeks Trump had. He had no infrastructure bills. So that's just to say the world was really hard. The inheritance was pretty fraught. And then that's to say nothing of the utter turmoil and disarray within our national security uh, uh, agencies and departments where there was an incredible degree of hollowing out, demoralization, um, and then, of course, all the difficulties that COVID created as well. So, you know, not all of that lands on, on Trump's feet, uh, but a lot of it does. Colin, you you mentioned the inheritance and the fact that the, the world seemed much harder. Um, and in some ways, of course, it got harder still. Um, and I imagine that any Republican candidate, Trump or otherwise, will seize on the bad things that have happened in the world since. So, you know, of course, you mentioned uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there's uh, the Hamas attack of Israel and the ongoing war now in Gaza. Uh, and I assume that the, the refrain from uh, the Republican camp will be that these things happen when uh, an administration and a president are not sufficiently strong. Um, that might be glib, but I wonder, since this is likely to be a, a recurring refrain throughout the campaign, how would you uh, imagine uh, responding to that? Yeah, well, look, I think anybody who's uh, served in senior foreign policy positions in any administration will recognize every administration faces international crises. Um, I served at the working level in the George W. Bush uh, administration. I served at various levels in the Obama administration. I was paying attention during the Trump administration and back in the Biden administration. Every administration deals with uh, international crises, uh, some that are foreseeable, uh, many that are not uh, foreseen. The fact that the world is a dangerous place and crises exist is not the fault of any given president. It's how the, it's how the president manages those crises. And so let's go down the list. I think uh, when you talk about Ukraine, look, I think President Biden deserves enormous credit in taking risk to uh, declassify intelligence months ahead of time, uh, to mobilize our allies in the world and put them on notice of what Putin intended to do in Ukraine. And then when the invasion happened to rally dozens of countries from around the world, not just in Europe, but uh, in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere to provide support to the Ukrainians and impose costs on the Russians. I think that if you look at where NATO was during the Trump administration or immediately uh, prior to the war and where NATO is now, it's demonstratively stronger, it's objectively bigger, uh, and it's more unified uh, than any time in my memory. And really, the only thing that could pull the rug out from Ukraine and NATO is if Republicans in Congress cut off the aid uh, or if Trump is reelected and walks away from NATO, which he has periodically uh, threatened uh, to do. But I think Joe Biden deserves extraordinary credit for rallying uh, the NATO alliance uh, and also containing the conflict within uh, within Ukraine's borders. Um, I think a lot of listeners probably saw the recent uh, or saw reporting of the recent declassified intelligence document on the cost that the Russians have faced uh, during this conflict. More than 350,000 casualties killed and wounded. That's more than the Soviets lost in 10 years in Afghanistan, plus two wars uh, in, uh, it, you know, that the Russians fought in Chechnya put together. The Russian military has probably lost 15 years of investments in military modernization as a consequence of the U.S. and allied support. Uh, for Ukraine, and none of his objectives, none of Putin's objectives have actually been met. 
Uh, Ukraine uh, continues to be independent. NATO was not weakened. It was strengthened. Russia did not emerge stronger. It emerged weaker and more dependent on China, Iran, and the DPRK. So I think that didn't just happen. That happened because of Joe Biden's leadership and the leadership of his team uh, on the world stage. On Gaza, uh, you know, look, I think the president, despite some of the politics in his own party uh, and beyond, uh, made the brave decision and the right decision to rally behind uh, Israel immediately after the October 7th terrorist attacks uh, in Israel that left at least 1,200 dead and 240 uh, hostages taken. It was a brutal assault on the basic principles of humanity. I think Biden immediately rallied rallied, uh, to Israel's defense and has stuck by Israel, even in the face of growing domestic and international uh, criticism. Now, in part because uh, Joe Biden believes that we have an ironclad commitment to Israel's security and that Israel has the right to defend itself in the face of attacks like this, but also in part because I think as vice president, he saw during the beginning of the Obama administration, um, you know, an administration that was at loggerheads with Israel on a whole host of issues publicly, and it didn't generate any American influence over Israeli policy. So I think he also believed that the embrace of Israel gave him more quiet, private leverage to shape Israeli policy. Uh, And I think that the administration uh, is doing that behind the scenes. Um, I think there is some growing frustration in the administration, which we can talk about if you're you're interested. But I think certainly the administration has shaped Israel's response to the better. I also think what the administration has achieved is keeping Hezbollah and Iran out of the war at scale. That is, the only thing that would make this conflict worse is if it became a conflagration across the Middle East. Certainly, Iranian proxies, you know, Iraqi and Syrian groups, the Houthis uh, in Yemen, low-level strikes by Hezbollah, all of that has happened. I'm not sure you can deter the kind of day-to-day low-level attacks, but strategic-level deterrence has been uh, met in the Middle East uh, to date, in large part because of the decision by uh, the president to send a couple of aircraft carriers and pretty strong messages, both directly and indirectly, to Tehran. And then the last point I would just make is that you know, he has a pretty good affirmative record. We've talked a lot about the strengthening of NATO, but if you actually look to the Indo-Pacific, which is kind of the core uh, theater of U.S. interests for the rest of the 21st century, we have uh, the trilateral AUKUS uh, agreement between the United States, the U.K., and Australia. We have uh, the elevation of the Quad, which is, uh, you know, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States to a focal point for regional uh, security and uh, diplomatic cooperation. We have uh, deepening trilateral cooperation between the United States, Japan, and ROK, that's South Korea, uh, the United States, Japan, and Australia, the United States, Japan, and the Philippines. And we have deepening bilateral uh, cooperation with Japan, Australia, the Philippines, India, and Vietnam. That's a pretty good scorecard. Uh, and if you're in uh, sitting in Beijing right now, all of that keeps you up at night uh, because you realize that uh, an alliance network that across the globe was in tatters at the end of the Trump administration has been rebuilt and repurposed to uh, help uh, build competitive edge for the United States. Colin, I think we're going to now drill down into actually all three of those topics that you just mentioned. So Ukraine, Gaza, and China. On Ukraine, uh, you're sitting here in Washington, probably watching what's been happening in the U.S. Congress. And it's been a struggle to get through a Ukraine aid package before the winter recess. And the question I'd ask you is, why is that? Uh, I mean, it looked like there was a package that was being discussed that had aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel, and then 
some border security measures, basically concessions uh, from the administration's perspective because they weren't necessarily moves that the administration wanted to make. But given what the administration thinks the stakes are around the first two issues, I was surprised that a deal couldn't be had there. Can you give a sense of why that didn't move? I'm sure there are others that uh, follow the back and forth in Congress closer than me, but here's my sense. I think the the Biden administration, and you heard this uh, uh, when the president met with Zelensky and, and they, uh, they addressed uh, the press, you know, the president and the Biden administration sees our continued support for Ukraine as a vital national interest, uh, not just in the defense of, of Ukraine, but in the broader defense of the free world and to make sure that other aggressors don't draw the lesson from Vladimir Putin that they can get away with it or that they can outlast their opponents. So I think the administration sees it as a vital national interest. I get the feeling that the GOP on the Hill sees it not as a vital national interest, but as a bargaining chip to advance domestic political agendas, specifically around immigration. I think the president has been willing uh, to have a compromise bill, a bill that includes not just Ukraine, includes uh, Israel money, it includes money for Taiwan, includes money for AUKUS and for the defense industrial base, and it includes money to strengthen border security, including some measures that some in the Democratic Party are not hugely comfortable with. And yet the president's willing to do all of that to kind of create a a larger security package that should be able to get bipartisan support, including from Republicans. And the fact that it can't is less of an indication that the president isn't willing to compromise. It's that I think ultimately today's Republican party is increasingly just Trump's party. Uh, And so you get the kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene talking points of, you know, why are we spending all this money helping Ukraine's border when we should be spending money on our own border? Right. And that just kind of resonates with the with the kind of the, the MAGA crowd as, oh, yeah, that's that makes sense. Why are we spending money in Ukraine? We should be spending on the border. I think the president's argument is we have an interest in doing both. He's willing to do both. But the Republicans seem to keep moving the goalpost on the immigration issues because of their own uh, ideological and internal politics. That said, I am hopeful that, you know, if anybody's able to cut a deal and a compromise, it's probably Joe Biden, who has accomplished some things on the Hill in a bipartisan frame, in a bipartisan context that that I think people uh, thought were unlikely. So I'm still hopeful. And and believe me, they really need it. I mean, as the official at the Pentagon who helped oversee, I think when I left in July, we had provided about $43 billion in security assistance to uh, Ukraine. Every single one of those packages came up through my office and was put together by my team. Ukraine requires US assistance. Uh, and it's not just because of the dollars and cents associated with that. I mean, ostensibly, other countries could potentially step up with money it's really that only the United States is able to deliver on short timelines the resupply of critical artillery, ammunition, air defense, missiles, guided multiple launch rocket systems out of our own uh, stockpiles. No other Western country really has that capability. So unless Congress continues to authorize and appropriate the tens of billions of dollars necessary to draw down U.S. stockpiles and transfer them to Ukraine and then replenish those stockpiles for our own use down the road, It'll be very difficult month to month for the Ukrainians to, you know, have what they need to stand up to Russian aggression. Just to to drill down a little bit more on Ukraine, is your sense that the outlook of the war has changed since you left uh, your position in the fall? Um, There is an increasingly gloomy mood associated with assessments of uh, of the war and Ukrainian prospects. And I think that's 
perhaps colored um, some of the discussion around assistance. Is your sense that the balance of forces, uh, the, the possibility for Ukrainian success has materially changed in recent months? Or is this just uh, an expected phase of what is necessarily going to be a long war? I think it's a little of both, uh, to be completely honest. I think that obviously there were high hopes for the counteroffensive uh, that launched in the late spring, early summer. Uh, obviously, the United States uh, provided a lot of support in the form of armored equipment, uh, artillery shells, uh, collective training, assistance in planning and advising. I mean, ultimately, this was the Ukrainians' fight, and they were going to fight it their their way. And it's Ukraine, after all, that is making the enormous sacrifices, and it's their country. So they, they're going to make the choices that are deemed by their leadership as the right ones. But we can, we can help, uh, and we have. Um, and so certainly there were high hopes that they would claw back additional territory uh, in the South and East, in particular in the South. And I think that the Ukrainian officials have been very frank that they have not achieved uh, what they hoped uh, to achieve. So one of the headwinds is that I think the conflict has settled into a kind of defense dominant phase. I think if we're honest, the conflict has maybe been defense dominant pretty much the whole time. The Russians swept in, they gobbled up portions of the Eastern uh, and Southern parts of Ukraine. And then they made this thrust towards Kyiv that failed. They were repelled and beat an orderly retreat and lost the Battle of Kyiv in the first six weeks of the war. Uh, then as the conflict shifted east, there was one dramatic offensive breakthrough by the Ukrainians in the north in a place called Kharkiv in the fall of uh, 2022. And then there was kind of incremental deliberate progress in taking back the West Bank of the Dnieper River and Kherson in the south. But other than that, the battlefield has moved very little, even at the cost of enormous blood and treasure on both sides. So I think that the conflict is just defense dominance. It's easier to play defense than it is to go on offense, especially when you combine the heavy use of artillery and the heavy use of things like drones to, uh, you know, to basically see anything that moves and call in uh, strikes on those moving forces. And then the months that the Russians use digging in in the South to lay minefields and tank traps and trenches and fall back defensive positions and everything else. So it's just hard. Real war is hard. It's not a movie. Uh, it's hard. The bad news is uh, Ukraine is struggling to take back a lot more of its territory. The good news is Russia can't take more of Ukraine either. The lines right now are fairly fixed. Uh, and the Ukrainian chief of defense, Zeluzhny, said uh, a number of weeks ago that the fight had essentially shifted into a positional uh, fight. And that's just a fancy way of saying the front lines aren't going to move very much for the foreseeable future. Well, I just want to jump in with a question about that, because the situation that you're describing, uh, you didn't use the word stalemate, um, but it sounded stalemate adjacent. And those are the circumstances sometimes where you can have a hope of maybe cutting some kind of deal. And certainly that is a point that we're hearing a lot more of, both from the sort of progressive left, but also from the MAGA right. I just wonder what you think about that. Certainly, there are instances in the in the past where a combination of stalemate and mutual exhaustion drive the parties towards a, a settlement. I think the challenge with, with that approach right now is uh, actually more about politics than the battlefield. First of all, you know, Joe Biden is not going to force Ukraine to give up its territory. If the Ukrainians ultimately decide uh, to settle for something 
short of getting back all the territory they had in February of uh, 2022, that is going to be their decision. It's not going to be something that the president of the United States twists their arm to do. I don't think it's consistent with uh, my understanding of Ukrainian politics to see that as likely in the near term. You know, Zelensky, I think, is unlikely to give up territory, probably period, but certainly not prior to securing a second term and a mandate associated with that and getting some level of security guarantees from the West that compensate for any loss uh, of territory. So I think the politics in Ukraine are obviously uh, tricky and, and it's for the Ukrainians themselves to navigate. I think the politics in Washington are also tricky in the sense that this president is not going to force uh, Zelensky to accommodate Vladimir Putin. And Putin is waiting to see if Trump wins. So Putin also doesn't have an incentive to cut a deal right now because he thinks he'll get a better deal uh, after November of 2024 if Trump uh, is in office. And he might be right. And the types of security guarantees that might be required for Ukraine, it's also hard to imagine getting consensus among 31 or 32 NATO allies this year, given all of the uh, uncertainties and while the war continues to rage. So I think that, Steve, I completely agree analytically that it's at times of stalemate and exhaustion where the two sides essentially have to get real and and start to have conversations about what the end game looks like. I think politics is going to conspire uh, against that happening in 2024. And so that raises the question, what should the strategy be? I think the strategy should be to put Ukraine in the best possible position when those negotiations happen. And a necessary condition for that is the Congress doing what it should do to advance the vital national interests of the United States, which is to provide the aid package uh, for Ukraine. I think it's also incumbent upon the Ukrainians to dig in and develop robust defenses to make sure that the Russians can't make further headway on the battlefield. It's very much in Ukraine's capacity to do that. I think Ukraine should take 2024 to not only hold, but to build, build up their own forces, recruit additional soldiers, train those soldiers, invest in their own defense industrial base and build not only for 2025, but beyond, because this conflict or the threat that Russia poses isn't going to go away as long as Vladimir Putin is president uh, in Russia. I think there will also be uh, an incentive for Ukraine to keep up the pressure, but I think that's going to be less in terms of large-scale offensives and more in coming over the top to engage in deeper strikes into Crimea uh, and into occupied other parts of occupied Ukraine to keep pressure on uh, Russian command and control, logistics, infrastructure, uh, those types of things. And then then the Ukrainians are going to have to think about their own preparations about what an endgame looks like. And is it a peace settlement or is it simply a diminution of the fighting in a way that allows uh, Ukraine to start rebuilding itself economically, societally, et cetera? But I don't, I don't think any of that, I don't think that last part is likely to materialize in 2024. To go back to Gaza, um, you were uh, quite positive in terms of your comments here with us about the president's approach to the conflict, the embrace of Israel, and its military campaign. Um, you also signed a, a public letter supporting U.S. policy to the, toward the conflict. Um, crisis group has been more critical. Um, we called for a ceasefire early on. We continue to be very concerned alarmed, really, about the civilian toll, uh, what that means for the future of Gaza as, as a place where pa- Palestinians can uh, live in the future. We continue to be worried about regional escalation. Uh, I wonder where you see the conflict heading, 
at this point and whether this is a moment in which the administration is perhaps shifting its approach, whether there is a change in terms of uh, patience for for how and how long uh, the Israeli military campaign um, might be conducted. Yeah, I mean, Michael, to be to be honest, I, I think I agree with just about every position uh, that you just articulated, with the partial exception that the ceasefire is complicated. Uh, you know, and I'm sure Crisis Group is doing good work on this, but it's incumbent upon advocates of a ceasefire. Obviously, a ceasefire would be good for the humanitarian situation, but advocates of a ceasefire also have to have an answer to what do you do with Hamas? Uh, and I've, I will just be candid. I have not seen a good answer uh, from think tanks or others about what gets done with Hamas. And there has to be an answer to the Hamas question because no, no country, to include the United States, would tolerate that threat on its border. I mean, to put it in per capita terms, uh, you know, 1,200 Israelis died on October 7th. That would be something like 40,000 Americans being butchered in a single day. Um, and if that had happened from a neighboring entity, I'm, I'm not sure our, our government would be inclined to uh, instantiate a ceasefire that didn't deal with that threat. Um, but you are absolutely right that the level of humanitarian suffering in Gaza is unacceptable. And I think it's unacceptable to the president. I, look, a fair reading of the president's comments since the very beginning have been he supports Israel's right and, in fact, obligation to defend itself. But Israel's military actions had to be taken in a way that complied not only with Israel's values, but Israel's obligations under international humanitarian law. And I think the sheer scale of the civilian suffering in Gaza raises the question whether, you know, the Israelis have done enough to safeguard civilians um, as they prosecuted the war, first in northern Gaza and now in southern Gaza. And I think that you've heard in the last few weeks increasing levels of concern. First of all, I, I, I can say with 100% confidence, these concerns have been expressed in private by the president, by Secretary Blinken, by Secretary Austin since day one. But the president's view is you get more out of the public hug and smaller punches underneath than you do by a full frontal assault uh, on the Israeli government in public. But I think you've seen increasingly vocal and public admonitions coming out of the Biden administration that the Israelis are not doing enough and need to do better in uh, protecting uh, civilians and in allowing humanitarian assistance to get uh, into Gaza. So the real question, I think, is where where do things go from here? And look, I think in, in recent days and weeks, you've seen an, increase, an increasing divide between the Biden administration and the uh, Netanyahu government on these questions. I think the first is, what is success? You're never going to completely dismantle Hamas if it means dismantling Hamas as an idea or as a movement or every last person who's ever been a member of Hamas. I think the question is how much of Hamas's leadership has to be eliminated or chased out of Gaza uh, and how much of their infrastructure, especially their tunnels network and their, and their weapons stockpiles need to be destroyed for Israel to be able to claim that they meaningfully eliminated Hamas's military threat uh, to Israel. And then how do you conduct that operation? I think that the Biden administration would like the Israelis to conduct it in a much more discriminate, deliberate, almost high value targeting type of way, rather than uh, the more full frontal assault on the ground and from the air that we saw in northern Gaza and have seen to some degree uh, in southern Gaza as well. So what does success mean? How do you achieve it militarily? And how do you do it without 
uh, killing and maiming thousands of additional uh, uh, Palestinian civilians. I think there's uh, also disagreement over levels of humanitarian aid. You've heard from uh, you know national security officials in the Biden administration pressure to uh, expand the number of border crossings so that more humanitarian assistance uh, can flow uh, into Gaza. That's absolutely imperative. It's something thus far the Netanyahu government has been uh, reluctant uh, to agree to. There doesn't appear to be any agreement on the day after. Certainly, there's public disagreement over the role of the Palestinian Authority, where the Biden administration has said that at the end of the day, Hamas should be displaced in favor of a reformed Palestinian Authority. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Netanyahu has basically made the argument that he rejects both Hamastan and Fatastan, uh, which means uh, he's not comfortable with the Palestinian Authority uh, coming back, at least in in anything like its current form, into Gaza. There's been disagreements over the degree of Israeli occupation on the day after. Does Israel control the security of all of the Gaza Strip? Do they uh, occupy for an enduring period of time certain pieces of territory? Do they establish a security zone or a buffer zone? And how is that reconciled with uh, you know, what appears to be the demands by the United States to not reoccupy uh, Gaza or have a sustained uh, presence over the time? And then lastly, the two sides have to agree that the two-state outcome has to be not this backburner issue, but a front and center issue. Um, you know, I think both during the Trump administration and to some degree in the Biden administration, the Arab peace initiative sequencing of peace with the Palestinians opening the door to normalization with Arabs in the Muslim world was reversed, right? The, the, the Abraham Accords inverted that sequence of you could get normalization first and handle the Palestinian issue through that normalization. I think we've now seen it flip back in the sense that I don't see further normalization to include uh, the Israeli objective and I think the Saudi objective of having a normalization deal between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the absence of a two-state outcome. And here, it's it's not only the right thing to do for the Palestinians and the right thing to do ultimately for Israel's long-term security, it's the right thing to do for the region, but it's almost imp- inconceivable to see Netanyahu's current right-wing government agreeing to any of it. Uh, so I think I think you are seeing increasing divergence between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government. And I expect that we'll see more and more of that in the public uh, in, in the coming days and weeks. So, Colin, I'll just quickly interject. I mean, the, the challenge that you put to us about, you know, what do you do about Hamas and how do you think about a ceasefire through that lens? I guess part of our answer to that would be in, in the balance of your response, which talked about all the different ways in which um, Israeli goals or professed ends were really not matched by a strategy or means. And, uh, you know, I guess our view would be under those circumstances, just absolutely pulverizing Gaza and causing thousands and thousands of deaths. You just can't justify that. That was one thing. And then the second, um, the reference to IHL, just as a former international law guy, it's tough because those standards are made by states and um, they're interpreted differently by states. And lawyers are very good at working with those concepts, which are pretty elastic to accommodate a huge range of state action. We've seen that in the United States as well. I agree. Look, I think that the, the first of all, Steve, you know, you've forgotten more about international humanitarian law or the laws of armed conflict than, than I'll ever know. But I will say that the biggest challenge here is what you consider to be military necessity and proportionality and how proportionality is measured. And frankly, there's not a good lawyerly answer to that. But I think to many around the world, Israel's response appears disproportional. And I think, you know, when you have the scale of the humanitarian suffering in Gaza, it's hard to argue with that common sense reading of proportionality, which is 
that the response seems disproportionate to some degree. I also think, and this is really just echoing my my former direct boss, uh, Lloyd Austin, who you know recently said, I think very powerfully, that Israel could end up having tactical and operational successes that lead to strategic defeat. And that's right. I mean, separate from the moral arguments, which I think are real, and the legal arguments, which are real, there's the strategic imperative that bombing Gaza back to the Stone Age is likely to lead to strategic defeat and therefore is unwise, um, even if in some narrow sense you can justify particular things as legal or, or, or uh, justified. So uh, let, let me um, push on to China. So as people who are watching the San Francisco summit that just happened between President Xi and President Biden uh, might have noticed, there seems to be a little bit of a thaw in the relationship um, in recent months. And of course, those summits don't just spring uh, wholly formed out of the earth. They have a long lead time with a lot of di- uh, diplomatic preparation. So both sides had to really want those outcomes and be working hard for them for a number of months. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that this thaw can last under the pressure of an election season where you're going to have both Democrats and Republicans wanting to posture um, as being tough on China um, just at a moment where things with China seem to be getting a little bit better? What, what do you think the impact of the election season might be on that? Yeah, look, I think in the meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping in San Francisco on the margins of the APEC uh, conference, both sides came into that meeting looking for a way to kind of stabilize uh, the relationship a bit uh, in the aftermath of some heady, pretty high profile crises. You know, you had the visit by then Speaker Pelosi to Taiwan. Uh, you had obviously the shoot down of the high altitude balloon over uh, the United States. Uh, you had the transit of President Tsai from Taiwan to the United States. All of these things have kind of created an era of of escalating tension and, and crisis. And I think both uh, Biden and Xi uh, had their own incentives to calm things down. I think on Xi Jinping's side, you know, the Chinese economy is facing pretty significant headwinds. Um, and I think, frankly, uh, ahead of Taiwan's election in January, Xi Jinping doesn't need escalating tensions between Beijing uh, and Washington. I also think right now China is actually focused on doing a bit of a charm offensive in the region and around the world. And he probably thinks that, you know, certain events like the like the war in Gaza uh, potentially plays uh, to China's advantage in the information space. So I think he's he's prepared to calm things down. And, you know, for for President Biden, I think, you know, he doesn't need another crisis on his plate with all that's going on in the Middle East and in Ukraine. And also, I think Biden thinks the United States is winning the long game. China is now hitting some real structural challenges with its economy. The United States is making generational uh, investments in its economy. Some of the most dynamic companies and innovations in the world are still happening in the United States. If you just look at what's happening in artificial intelligence, uh, for example, after years of people predicting that China was going to eat our lunch uh, uh, on uh, artificial intelligence. And I think uh, the president believes he's made real strides diplomatically and geopolitically in tightening alliances and partnerships in the Indo-Pacific in all the ways that I enumerated uh, earlier. So he also has a reason for there not to be uh, a crisis, which is why I think you had some agreements on reopening, you know, military communications channels. You had the fentanyl agreement, the, dis- the decision to have conversations on uh, nuclear weapons and on artificial intelligence. These are all good things. But Steve, your question is the right one, which is, will it survive politics? And in particular, I would point to politics in two places. One is politics in Taiwan, 
you know, there is going to be this election in January. And depending on who wins, you could see China become quite bellicose uh, if current Vice President Lai uh, and the DPP come back uh, into power or stay in power, I should say. You know, you may see uh, a more coercive and bellicose uh, reaction by the mainland uh, after that. And then there's the dynamic you point to, which is whether our own presidential election cycle generates a degree of rhetorical outbidding uh, where uh, everybody starts to uh, beat up on the other side, you know, to score political points. You know, I, I, I think President Biden will be pretty responsible uh, on that score, um, but I have I have no expectation that that will be true uh, uh, when it comes to uh, a former President Trump. Colin, you, you mentioned rhetorical outbidding, and I, in in February of this year, you um, you made some comments pushing back on some chatter about the inevitability of uh, near-term U.S.-China conflict um, over Taiwan. You said at the time that you didn't see any indication that there had been a, a change in China's view um, and, and that you didn't see a near-term attempt by uh, China um, to take Taiwan. Uh, through military means, the comments caught a lot of people's attention, uh, including mine. And I, I wonder why why you thought it was important to make those comments uh, when you did. Because I think there's a lot of speculation in Washington, and there were a lot of speculation among senior military officers, to be completely candid, that they knew exactly when a war in Taiwan was going to kick off. People speculation speculating 2027, 2025. Um, you know, pick, pick, it's like pick a date out of a, out of a hat. Um, and there's just no intelligence picture to support those predictions. Xi Jinping doesn't know if and when he's going to invade Taiwan. So how does somebody in the halls of the Pentagon know? I'm not ruling it out. I just saw no indication that it was imminent or inevitable. And I don't know any intelligence professional in the U S government who sees in, uh, indications that a conflict over Taiwan is imminent or inevitable. It is conceivable. Uh, and the risk of it may grow over time. And the risk gets higher as we get toward the end of the 2020s uh, for reasons we can we can talk about. But nobody knows the date. So I was pushing back against this sense that the United States was somehow on the clock, that you know the war was ha- going to happen in 2025. There was a letter by General uh, uh, Mike Minahan, for example, that's just 2025. Others said 2027. The 2027 date, which is most often reported, is simply the date that Xi Jinping has given his military to be ready. Uh, uh, But that doesn't mean that they will be ready. And it also doesn't mean that even if they were ready, that Xi Jinping would make that decision. So nobody knows what the date uh, will be. I think more substantively, though, there's reason to believe that whatever the date might have been a couple of years ago, some additional time has been put on the clock. And I think the reason for that is twofold. First, I think the war in Ukraine was a real wake-up call for China uh, and for Xi Jinping. You know, Russia looked like the second best military in the world the day that it invaded Ukraine. It doesn't look like the second best military in the world now. And it turns out real war is real hard. Uh, And China hasn't fought a war since the 70s. The last time they fought, they lost to Vietnam. Uh, now, to be fair, we also lost to Vietnam in the 70s. So the 70s was a bad decade to go to war with Vietnam. Uh, but they, you know, they they haven't been fighting. Uh, and uh, they see the, in the United States a kind of a martial people that has been kind of fighting nonstop uh, since the end of the Second World War. And, uh, you know, I don't know that Xi Jinping has a lot of confidence in his military. And there's nothing about the war in Ukraine that would give him more confidence in his 
military. And you've seen some of the house cleaning he's done recently. It shows he's still worried about uh, things like uh, the loyalty of senior commanders and and corruption issues and, and things like that. I also think that he saw in the tenacity of Ukraine and the resilience of its democracy, the prospect that the same could be true with Taiwan. Uh, I think he saw in the use by Ukraine of asymmetric uh, technologies, manned portable air defense systems, anti-tank systems, loitering munitions, drones, uh, things that could cause the PLA uh, fits, just like they've caused uh, the Russians fits. I think he saw in the global response uh, how good U.S. intelligence was, how active we were in the information space, how active we were in mobilizing uh, advanced economies and democracies, not just in Europe, but in the Indo-Pacific to, to uh, uh, punish the Russians for what they did, something that he doesn't look forward to. And so my view is he thinks that a conflict relative to where a couple of years ago, he thinks the conflict will be harder, longer, and will generate more military and non-military costs. And all of those things contribute to deterrence. All of those perceptions contribute to deterrence. Now, do I think he's given up his aspirations to force Taiwan to reunify with the mainland one way or another? Absolutely not. I believe he still has those uh, those those objectives. But to quote the great philosopher Quint from Jaws, he's going to need a bigger boat. And it's going to take longer for him uh, to build that bigger boat uh, militarily, but also to de-risk his own economy uh, and uh, his diplomatic relationships in the event that he goes after Taiwan. So that doesn't mean an invasion won't happen. It does mean we have more time. We need to use that time wisely to build up Taiwan's own capabilities, strengthen our own deterrent, uh, and to push back against what Beijing is doing every single day, which is the kind of steady state coercion against Taiwan uh, that they're doing uh, out in the open and in the gray zone, uh, and that they're kind of ratcheting that up over time. We do need to worry uh, about that. But I, I do not think that an invasion is imminent or inevitable. Um, Colin, I'm going to do one last question if you've got the time. I don't know if you've um, followed the discussion among some of the Trump supporter camp and others about turning the war on drugs into an actual cross-border shooting war. We initially saw this as just something that was going to come and go and shouldn't be given a lot of oxygen. Then we started to see more and more people talking about it. I think there was even a draft use of force authorization um, circulating in Congress a few months ago that would have created broad authority to strike uh, cartels and perhaps even the Mexican state, regardless of, of uh, the international law boundaries around those kinds of actions. It seemed pretty crazy for a number of reasons, um, uh, aside from the normative ones, including the illogic of turning a Pacific neighbor and the United States' biggest trading partner into an adversary. But still, it doesn't seem to have gone away. And I'm curious, was this idea ever floated within the Department of Defense when you were there, even by people from Congress coming around to ask you about it? And do you think this is something that Republicans might seriously pursue if they're elected? Uh, so no, because it's crazy. But I do worry. And the reason I worry is that I, I have a I have like my spider sense is tingling in a way that suggests that bomb the cartels could be the new build the wall in 2024. And it's crazy. You know, there's zero legal basis to do that. Um, there's no international legal basis to do that. Domestically, it would certainly require an authorization of the use of military force, hence some of the you know potential agitation on the Hill 
uh, and, and, you know, talk about linking the war on drugs to the war on terror and, and, and the like. Uh, but there's no legal basis. But more importantly, it's completely crazy. The militarization of the drug war in Latin America, to say the least, has a checkered and pretty ineffective history. And there is no reason to believe that bombing drug labs and sending U.S. special forces, which I think is something that Ron DeSantis has has talked about, would substantially stem the flow of illegal fentanyl or any other types of drugs uh, into the United States. And to say the least, a blatant violation of of Mexico's sovereignty would deeply complicate our, our ability to cooperate with the Mexican government on drug issues. And at a time where I think the Mexican government is trying to get more serious. I mean, there's been recent legislation um, you know, on limiting the import of chemical precursors for fentanyl. And there seems to be some opportunity for greater cooperation. But you could kiss all of that goodbye if we start dropping bombs uh, in Mexico. Moreover, think about bombs dropping all over northern Mexico and the destabilization that that would produce and what that would do to the immigration issues and the humanitarian issues on our southern border. It would backfire in uh, the worst way and, and somewhat ironically for a party that claims to be fixated on security at our borders. It would be perceived as an act of aggression by most of the international community, uh, which would give us a black eye at a time where we're trying to rally the international community in the face of aggression by other states, most notably Russia and China. I think it would reawaken a very dark history of gunboat diplomacy and military intervention by the United States in our hemisphere, which I think would complicate our ability not only to cooperate with Mexico, but with other neighbors uh, in the hemisphere at a time when we're trying to push back against things like you know, territorial aggression by Venezuela. Um, so other than all those things, it's a great idea. Um, I won't say I'm surprised at your answer, but thank you uh, for sharing that with us. Um, thank you in general, Colin, for coming on and being our first guest. It was a great conversation. Uh, I think I can speak for both of us in saying we learned a lot. We hope maybe we can get you back at some point down the road. Thanks, guys. great. Uh, what a great first guest. A uh, lot of insight there and a fair amount of candor uh, from a guy who just left the administration. He's you know free to speak a little bit more uh, freely than if he were still in a U.S. official, but still, uh, I thought it was pretty remarkably candid. Um, and frankly, c- kind of interesting uh, and nice to have the thesis of this podcast affirmed in terms of uh, confirming there are a lot of high stakes policy issues that are going to be pretty closely tied to election year politics in Ukraine, where it sounds like the parties really are to some extent hemmed in in terms of their options until, you know, the the elections happened uh, because Putin's not going to move until he sees whether or not he's dealing with Biden or Trump. Also in China, where, you know, he's pretty confident that Biden's going to be, uh, you know, in control of his rhetoric over the next year, but still, I think, worried that you could see an escalatory dynamic where, Republicans and Democrats, you know, talk each other into a frenzy over U.S.-China and some of the good work that's been recently done to try and thaw relations, um, you know, could be undone. And then, of course, you know, that interesting exchange at the end where we were talking about the possibility of a shooting war with Mexican cartels. And he said his worry is that you're going to develop some sort of election year slogan like uh, bomb the cartels and that that could create expectations that end up creating really, really damaging realities for uh for regional peace and security, let's put it that way. Anyway, those were my takeaways. I don't know. What did you think, Michael? 
Yeah, you mentioned candor, and and I would say I was struck by his candor with respect to um, disappointments around the Ukrainian counteroffensive over the summer, um, and the way that that really did change perceptions and probably shifted the policy discussion. Um, you know, there's an there's sometimes an effort to downplay that to suggest that uh, that the United States and others have all along been prepared for a very long war. Uh, and so, you know, I, you know, I thought that was quite notable. And, and the other thing that I, that I noted was um, the long list of potential divergences between the United States and Israel. He's obviously been quite supportive of the Biden administration to date and its policy on the war in Gaza. And yet, uh, and we're beginning to see this play out in real life as well, he noted um, a fairly long list of, of ways in which the United States and Israel might be looking at the war differently in terms of uh, strategic aims and tactics. And and I thought that quite notable. Yeah. And that has political resonance too, because obviously, um, you know, the democratic coalition really could be pulled in very different directions vis-a-vis what they'd like to see happen in that war. We're already seeing that. I'm sure they're thinking about that in the White House too. Um, okay. Well, this was great, Michael. I appreciate it. Um, the chance to host this podcast with you. We're looking forward to uh, the next edition. I hope our listeners will return. I hope in the meantime, they subscribe uh, on the platform of their choice. Leave us comments, um, likes if they are so inclined. Um, and I'd also like to invite people who are listening to look at Crisis Group's website, where you'll see our in-depth work on the war in Gaza, the war in Ukraine, U.S.-China relations, and a whole lot more. Uh, We'll be back in a month. Thanks again. Thanks for listening.